KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. It's Friday, January 22, 2021. This week, as the Biden administration takes charge in Washington, the death toll from COVID-19 has soared past 400,000. We need all our strength to, preserve, to persevere through this dark winter. We're entering what may be the toughest and deadliest period of the virus. We must set aside politics and finally face this pandemic as one nation. President Joe Biden's ambitious goal of 100 million vaccine doses in his first 100 days in office faces logistical obstacles, but also historical ones. Among communities of color, centuries of oppression and inequities are contributing to vaccine resistance and skepticism that paradoxically could marginalize these communities even more. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kimberly Manning, a physician at Grady Memorial Hospital and Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Emory's Department of Medicine. Dr. Manning grew up in Los Angeles, but came to the South for college at Tuskegee University in Alabama, for medical school in Tennessee, and finally to Atlanta to build her career. I, I read that you're the fourth generation that attended, in your family, that attended Tuskegee University. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, my great-grandmother went to Tuskegee. Uh, my grandparents met at Tuskegee and fell in love there, my maternal grandparents. So they were actually college students on the campus of Tuskegee, then Tuskegee Institute, during the time that in Macon County, Alabama, um, the untreated syphilis study was happening. And I always like to make the distinction that um, it was happening in Macon County, Alabama, but not at the, um, the institution to which my family is connected. Criminal is just one of the words being used now to describe a study of syphilis, a study reported by the Associated Press this way, quote, for 40 years, the U.S. Public Health Service has conducted a study in which human guinea pigs were denied proper medical treatment in order to study the long-term effects of syphilis and its side effects, unquote. The patients in this study were all black, poor, uneducated, mostly from Macon County in Alabama. Tuskegee is the county seat. When you were attending Tuskegee University, what was sort of the understanding about the um, the untreated syphilis experiment that had gone on for so many decades, about which many Americans probably didn't know much about at all until recent months when we've been talking more and more about vaccine resistance in terms of not, not wanting to take it? Can you talk a little bit about your own memory of, of what you understood about it? I would say the biggest thing I um, remember is that it happened. But it's interesting if if you are um, in circles where you know the people that you know attended historically black colleges, right? When somebody says Tuskegee to me, even when I was in high school, even when I'd read about the untreated syphilis study, the first thought in my head was always Booker T. Washington, black excellence, veterinarians, the um, Tuskegee Airmen. That's what always came to my head. Um, and it broke my heart, you know, when I when I got to medical school, or actually more residency, 
and and people made the word Tuskegee synonymous with this horrific study. And so we were aware of it, but we never really felt like it um, was related to us. We just felt like it was related to our people. And it just so happened that it happened, um, that, that it was geographically near our school. So that experiment has been invoked many times in recent months. In the midst of a global pandemic, Dr. Laulu Fayanju says he's finding a chance to build trust. It's it's an opportunity for us to really try to change the course of how minority communities perceive healthcare institutions and healthcare providers. History has given minority groups, specifically African-Americans, plenty of reasons to be skeptical. Medical experiments on that population date back to colonial times, but the Tuskegee syphilis study might be the most well-known. Nearly four. Whenever I am reading a story about equity and in terms of the equitable application of the vaccine, and we talk about skepticism among communities who are black and brown, uh, that that is something that that is in their mind. Can you talk a little bit about that generalization and and to what degree that's that's an accurate one? I think it's really important um, to to think about where people's mistrust comes from now. As I think about the conversations I have with my patients and with people that I know of, they aren't really uttering things about the untreated syphilis study. What they're talking about is social injustice. You know, if you turn on the TV and you see someone who looks like you or your dad or your brother or your sister gets shot, you know, and who's unarmed, right? Um, and, and and the reaction is that nothing happens, right? There is no recourse or anything. What that says to you is it happens over and over and over again is that, you know, the system doesn't care about me. And the broader system, um, it begins to like blend and bleed into healthcare too. Some folks feel like, well, you might allow me to take one for the team because the same way that you would, you know, gas me and rubber bullet me and and shoot me. Why, why would you, why would you not um, also be willing to let something happen to me if there was a bad thing about this vaccine? Dr. Manning, you've worked at Grady hospital, which is Atlanta's safety net hospital for the past 20 years or so. How has your perception about how we treat Americans in the healthcare system changed in that time? What have you learned? Well, you know, uh, Grady Memorial Hospital is um, really a place that draws a certain type of people to work there. Um, And I always say that working there feels like ministry. You're surrounded by all these like-minded people who want to serve the underserved. And so I I actually feel like I see some of the very best of humanity of all races um, working inside of the building. With my patients, um, what I've learned the most uh, from working there is that, um, you know, I came there thinking that I was going to save people's lives. And my patients, they save our lives. You know, they show us and teach us some of the most important lessons um, that you could never read in a book or a journal in medical school. Um, just some of just some of the wisdom and the resilience 
that you see in our patients, people catching buses and, you know, all of the things people go through to, to get health care, and yet they still have a smile on their face and remember the name of your kids. Um, I just think, I, I, I think I see some of the best of humanity at Grady, and people misunderstand that about safety at hospitals, I think. Well, is there a, a patient that comes to mind in, in the 20 years or so that you've worked there that, that, that maybe illustrates what you're, what you're talking about? Yes, <laughs> there are so many, but one, part, one, one experience I had that always stands out, and I'm going I'm to do my very best to tell you this and not cry because I'm a crier. In 2012, um, unfortunately, um, my older sister, Deanna, died of a sudden cardiac death out of the blue. She was 44. She lived in Atlanta. She was a, um, a, an educator, actually. After she left engineering, she taught middle school science and math. And uh, she was a daily part of my life. And um, losing her, I mean, it just like gutted my family to the core, right? And um, when I came back to work, um, I was grieving and I, I needed to find some things to do to help me, you know, to be able to kind of go forward. And I made up my mind to become a runner. I'm running and running and running and running and running. And developed a a stress fracture. So one day I'm in clinic and I'm limping in clinic, and one of the patients that had been we've been caring for for years, one of the Grady elders, as I affectionately call them, he asked me what was wrong with my ankle, and I told him. Um, about four years later, I was in the Grady lobby one day, coming through the lobby, oh, <laughs> and it was just it was just a regular day. And um, just hustle, bustle, busy. And I hear somebody calling my name and it's him. And he's sitting on a little, a little metal chair waiting for the Grady transportation to come and get him. And I come over to talk to him and he's telling me that he just left dermatology and he was pulling up his leg, pants leg to show me this little rash on his leg and we're chatting. And it had been years since I'd seen him. And I was like, oh, so good to see you. And he goes, how how was your run? And he says, looks like your leg got better because you're not hobbling anymore. And he said, you remember your run for your sister that went to glory? And I just, I just stood there staring at him with all these people all in the lobby walking around me. I'm late to clinic. I have all these things I have to do. Here is this 80-something-year-old man in Atlanta, Georgia, who is on a fixed income, who's waiting for Grady transportation, who has probably seen the absolute worst of what you can see in the Southern United States, yet he still has it in him to remember me. And, and in my head, I, I was walking away from him thinking, I'm, I am going to work harder at seeing and stopping and remembering my patients because they're doing that for me too. This is a, this is a bi-directional thing here. Um, and I'm and I'm finding that those relationships, those therapeutic alliances that we build, it's not it's not just for the patient; it's for us. And I think those are the things that we need as we try to, you know, help our patients feel trust in this time. Mm-hmm. 
Brady Memorial Hospital in downtown Atlanta is known for a lot of things. The trauma and burn centers are both life-saving and busy. And more recently, the hospital has been filled with COVID-19 patients. And just ask Dr. Kimberly Manning. A doctor decided to celebrate a milestone birthday by raising money to help fight coronavirus. Just ahead, how Dr. Kimberly Manning decided to take part in a coronavirus vaccine trial and why the decision for her was so important. This is Georgia Today. If you like hearing the news from around the state here on Georgia Today, you'll probably like hearing how Georgia's agriculture economy feeds the country and the world on a fork in the road. I'm David Zelski, and on the Fork in the Road podcast, we feature stories from Georgia's farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, chefs, and others who help provide Georgia-grown products to folks in the Peach State and beyond. Find it online at gpb.org slash podcasts or download it on your favorite podcast platform. This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. I'm grateful to work alongside you as we address these long-term health disparities that have plagued our communities for far too long. That's Reverend Raphael Warnock this week, days before he was sworn in as one of Georgia's United States senators. He spoke during an event to shed light on COVID-19's impact in the black community. These comorbidities that we've been dealing with, hypertension, diabetes, stroke, all of these things exacerbate the impact of COVID-19 in communities of color. So we are dying, more likely to die, dying more often. And that is weighing heavily on Dr. Kimberly Manning, a physician at Atlanta's Grady Memorial Hospital. Dr. Manning is my guest this week, and we're discussing the impact of COVID-19 on the communities that she often serves. When people talk about um, COVID-19 disproportionately impacting the black community, what that translates to, if you are a black person who, um, you know, is sort of steeped in the black community, you are the doctor in the family for a lot of people. I, I basically, since March, have had, you know, in my phone, like a, a list, a running list of virtual rounds. People that I, you know, wake up in the morning and I text them, hey, what's going on? How's your breathing? Are you, you know, turn over on your stomach? What are you doing? How's your mom? And at one point it was just text after text after text. Hey, I can't breathe. Hey, so-and-so lost their smell. Hey, um, I'm trying to decide if my mom should go to the hospital. Hey, what should I do? And I had a near peer um, that went to college with me that was in the ICU for, you know, more than 40 days, um, same age as me a parent, someone who doesn't have a bunch of medical problems. Um, and it was terrifying. So I think um, more of what I'm seeing is that this air quotes, disproportionate impact, it is palpable um, in my lived experience in terms of who's calling me, who's worrying, who's asking for my advice, who's trying to navigate systems. Furthermore, with people who get admitted to the hospital and who can't go see their loved ones, um, people are just grabbing at anything they can get to try to understand what's happening. And so I'm getting a lot of those calls as well. So um, I I'm feeling that a lot too. You made a decision to take part in a vaccine trial. Can you talk a little bit about, about what that meant and, and how you decided to make that decision? In addition to being a Black American, I'm a descendant of slavery. 
And the significance of that is that slaves were, were you know, there, there's things described to people describing slaves and Black people as, as better than lab animals. There were people who looked like me who could not um, say no. They couldn't be consented. They couldn't um, be given all the information and allowed to sign forms to pull out of something if they didn't want to do it, to decide if they wanted to participate. They were um, often sold to somebody just to for them to be experimented on. And um, that is not lost on me. You know, it isn't lost on me that um, I was born into a time where I, I get to make choices, where I, not only that, I get to make choices and I'm a medical doctor working at a major um, leading medical school where I actually know a lot of the primary investigators and am in a position to, to, to ask as many questions as possible. And I just sort of thought, you know, this is a great way to honor my ancestors. I, you know, I am going to step into this space and I am going to listen to all of the information and then I will choose to consent or I will choose to refuse. Um, and I chose to consent um, knowing also that one of the big issues we have as physicians when we and, and clinician educators is that we look at studies and often there are not many um, black people in the study and we try to apply it to our patient population but there weren't many black people studied so i also liked the idea of honoring my patients by saying hey you know what i know for sure there was a, somebody black in this study um, because you're looking at her i got to just say that to somebody at the car wash the other day who said there wasn't no black people in the study i'm like no that's not true who are we my right sisters here. and me, we are the vaccinating sorors of DST. We have tried to use our hands to get these vaccines into as many as we can. I noticed that on your, your Twitter account, and you have uh, many, many thousands of followers, oftentimes you will talk about experiences you've had with members of the public. And it, it feels like you're almost, um, you've almost become kind of an ambassador for getting vaccinated for COVID. Is that, is that an accurate representation? <laughs> I'm smiling at that word ambassador because I've never heard that myself called that. Um, but what I will say is I'm an ambassador for whatever is going to protect my folk. When you live in a place like Georgia where, you know, Black folks make up 30.5% of the population, yet you more than 80% of the people in the hospital. That's real. And I don't, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to see people disabled. I don't want to see people losing their mamas and their daddies unnecessarily. And so, you know, I like people. And since I like people, um, what I normally do when I'm out and about in my day, which is what I would normally do, chat people up about things. Now I'm just dropping in, hey, what you think about this COVID vaccine? And, you know, the same way I would probably give somebody, you know, a little medical tip here and there um, if I'm in the grocery store or if I'm at the car wash or the pizza shop or wherever I am. Um, I, now now I, I'm, I'm finding, I'm exploring people's reasons why. And, I, and, and part of this sort of air quotes ambassadorship, if you will, I think is that I want people to know that if a black person says no, it is not just because of medical mistrust. It's not. It's a whole bunch of reasons. 
Some people have misinformation. Some people have questions that have not been answered. Some people are afraid of needles. Some people uh, just don't logistically, physically know how to go get it. They don't even, that's a big barrier for people. Um, there's a lot of different reasons. And so a lot of what I talk about on social media is what's your why? You know, black, black whys matter, ask why. I say no, ask me why. Don't just say, you said no, it's because you don't have a college education and because of Tuskegee. No, it's because you did not explain and you were you were rude. You were 20 minutes late to my visit. You were rushing me. You were typing on the computer the whole time you were talking to me. You didn't make eye contact with me. I don't feel safe with you. And then you turn and ask me, do I want this vaccine? Guess what? No. President Biden has outlined a very aggressive attack plan uh, for COVID-19. A hundred million shots in the first hundred days. And we'll follow the guidance of science to get the vaccines to those most at risk. At the same time, we're hearing from, uh, I saw a story the other day in Kaiser Health News, that so far black Americans are receiving COVID vaccinations at lower rates than white Americans, um, at least where, where we have the data in the states that do break that down by race. What would you tell President Biden in terms of trying to make those numbers more equitable in terms of administering the vaccine? Oh, um, well, you know, I think, um, one, uh, there has to be easier ways for people to register. You know, I've volunteered and um, administered some vaccines. And so as we think about some of our um, high-risk groups, um, I tried to register my mother uh, to get her vaccine at one of our health departments and one of the sites that was vaccinating. And, you know, it, it really required you to be tech savvy. And if I had not been there with my mom to do this, um, I, I just don't know how she would have done this. Um, there are lots of things, it's kind of like similar to some of the things that's making it difficult for, for children with uh, remote learning right now. It's just all of these things that kind of require um, too, ma too many steps. So I think that one thing that would help would be to come into the community if um, there's a way that you could show up, you know, with ID. And there would be people there very similar to how when we register people to vote sometimes, like we do all the work for you. Um, to help people get registered on in and just kind of have them come on through. And there's some places that are doing this well. You know, um, I've participated in some some um, vac vaccination volunteer things where it's we've had people come through in cars and it's worked really well. But th there has to be um, some of those speed breakers to get registered, these sites crashing, needing good Internet, you know, needing, you know, really, really good vision because the font is so small. You just should be able to show up in your community. I think that's what I would say. Meet people where they are. Try our best um, to try to see if we can, you know, have some some racial concordance with some of the people working in the communities too, right? So if you see me in the community and you're Black and I grew up speaking African-American vernacular and I'm talking to you in a way that makes you feel comfortable, um, you know, you might feel safe. And so, and I think that that's something that we can do. Um, I think at some places we are doing that. We just need to do it more. My thanks to Dr. Kimberly Manning, a professor of medicine at Emory University and a physician at Grady Memorial Hospital. 
After the study for which she volunteered was unblinded, Dr. Manning learned that she had, in fact, received the placebo, and so was offered the real vaccine in exchange for her participation. She got her first shot this month and will get her second dose in early February. As to those who are still hesitant about getting the vaccine, she had this to say. I promise you, if you change your mind and decide you are ready to be vaccinated, I will not nanny boo boo you at all. I will be the first one um, to greet you with open arms. I'm Steve Fennessy. This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you get podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple. Our producer is Sean Powers. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.